Gateway, how you doing? Kyle here. Happy Sunday to you all, wherever you may find yourself this beautiful day. Maybe you are venturing out to a porch or a patio. Uh, you're just like thankful that warm weather is starting to creep back into the middle of the West here. So wherever you find yourself, grace and peace to you. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and grab those. You can uh, flip or tap your way on over to Mark chapter 4 starting in verse 35. And today's going to be pretty simple. Uh, I'm just going to read the passage here in, in Mark 4, 35 to 41, and then I'm going to pray. And then we're just going to go back through and we're going to work our way through line by line and then kind of lingering on the latter portion of that passage to end our time. So if you would, uh, without further ado, Mark chapter 4, verse 35, this is what we read. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with him in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is the word of the Lord. Well, Lord, we, we come to you as our God who is great, our God who is good, and we come to you with, with all of ourselves. We submit that, that our weeks have begun just to disorient some of us. For others of us, they've begun to frustrate us. For some of us still, there's actually been this release of joy in this past week. And um, suffice it to say, it is a, it's just a mixed bag across the spectrum. And so, Lord, but what we all need, irrespective of where we are, we need you. Why else would we come to your scriptures? Why would we gather together in our little communities and recite confessions and assurances and, and, and speak hope to one another as we sing and exalt your name and worship through song? Why would we enter into the rhythms of the gospel if we need anything else but you? So Lord, we just say collectively and in this space particularly as we hear your word and respond to it that we need you. And so, Lord Jesus, would you come? Would you come with power and meet us with your grace? Would your gentle and yet strong voice speak loudly to us today, Lord? Give us ears that hear the voice of our shepherd calling out to us. So, Lord, as, as we hear your scriptures, would you incline our hearts to you? Would you stir our affections for you, Jesus? Through the power of your spirit and your word, we pray. Amen. So if you're not there already, go ahead and go back with me to verse 35. And it starts out this way. On that day. And just stop right there ever so briefly. So what is that, that day? Well, 
if you were with us three weeks ago, or if, even if you were with us and you could remember that far back, you may recall that Jesus, he went down by the shore of a small lake in the northern parts of Israel, this region called the Galilee, to the Sea of Galilee. And if, if you're new to the Bible and th this whole Jesus thing, this spot in the northern part of Israel, this is like the hot spot of Jesus's ministry up until this point in the gospel according to Mark. It is the really the locus point where we've seen the, the mighty works of God on display in Jesus. So we've, we've, we've seen him uh, cast out unclean spirits in a synagogue. We've seen him heal sick in homes. We've seen him teach with authority in all of these contexts in and around the sea. And yet with all the time that Jesus spends around the sea, Mark's provided little to no theological reflection on the sea or, or even like allowed the sea to become more prominent than just being a place. But, but today that begins to shift. You see, Jesus just taught in, in the passages preceding this in Mark chapter four, these little stories, these word pictures, if you will, they're called parables. It's these moments where we get to slow down with Jesus and wonder with him what the kingdom of God is like. What is it for God's personal presence to show up and bring freedom and release and healing in God's good world? And the parables help us to imagine that in a whole new way. And just after Jesus has spent a day teaching these parables, we read this later on in verse 35. We see that when evening had come, he, that is, that is Jesus, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And now there's just tuck this latter part of verse 35 away in your minds for next week, because we're going to get to this whole idea of the other side in chapter five. But for now, know this, the other side, the, the other side is outside of the bounds of Jewish territory. The other side, to go there is to leave the bounds of, of safety in the Jewish imagination. It's, it's not only a departure from one's home and community and safe spaces, it's the entry into hostile territory. It's the land of the unclean. It's the space of the other. It's where evil is embodied in like the Roman imperial army and Gentiles. This is the space of the other. It is the other side. And yet this is where Jesus desires to go. And if that's not enough tension to start us off into this passage, go with me to, to the next set of verses here in verse 36 and 37. We read, and leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. And so this feels like a little throwaway line, but it's, it's just to say that there's this connection between Jesus's teaching and what's to come next. Jump down to verse 37. And a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. Now, if if you were amongst some of Mark's first readers and you heard this little section read maybe in your house church or something, your response might be the first century equivalent of, well, yeah, no, duh. Of, of course this is happening. Of course there's a storm on the sea. And you know what? Our response might actually be the same if we're thinking about the Sea of Galilee, but the underlying reason why we would have the same response, that's a bit different. Here's what I mean. 
Knowing that this passage was coming this week, maybe you did this. Maybe you saw a little post on Instagram and you saw we would be in Mark 4, 35 to 41. So you started doing some research because you're just a studious student of the word. You want to drink deeply from the scriptures and I commend you for that. But you started reading and you're wondering, well, what, what was the context? What was the geographical setting? And so you realize, oh, alas, I have no topographical atlas in my home. I, I have nothing of the sort. So you jump on Google like um, the rest of the world does. And then you quickly see, uh, oh, okay, the Sea of the Galilee is, is like 700 feet below sea level. And then just 30 miles to the north is Mount Hermon. And that's like some 9,200 feet above sea level. And in that moment, as you're doing your research, you remember from your eighth grade earth science class, you remember that when cold air comes down from the mountains and warm air comes up from a body of water, that it creates this perfect spot for squalls and storms to flourish. And so you, you, be, you begin to say, yeah, the sea is a volatile place. So you think that along the contours of Mark's first readers, of course, the, the sea is where a storm would come up. But remember, your and my underlying reason is different. See, for you and me, more often than we care to admit, the storm, the storm is about weather patterns. It's about how warm and cold fronts collide over a body of water. But in Mark's and in Jesus's context, that's not all. Because the sea, it is the locus point, the hot spot of cosmological conflict and chaos. It's basically where it goes down at a cosmological level. And, and hear me here, because I know that that sounds kind of weird. When we look at this section, we may just see a storm. We may just see a volatile sea, a, a body of water. Because ours is an entirely natural view of that scene. But in the ancient Near East, the sea, it was symbolic. Symbolic of evil and chaos and the rebellious spiritual ills that have invaded God's good world. And all we have to do is begin to reflect on the, the language and the songs of the ancient Near East for the, for the Hebrew people, for Jesus himself. And and thanks be to God, we actually have those with us in our hand today. And so if you just go back to Psalm 93, you, you see that it starts off like this. It says, the Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He is put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. And right here, the psalmist is just painting this beautiful picture of God enthroned on high. He rules over the cosmos. And then, then we read this in verse 3. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. Mightier than the thunders of many waters. Mightier than the waves of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. Just in, in that little song, we begin to see that there's, a sh there, there's this undercurrent in the way that the Hebrew people would see the sea. And if that's not enough to convince you, flip with me over just a page and go to Psalm 98. And, and we read this little verse 
right here. It says, O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you, you rule the raging sea. When its waves rise, you still them. See, it's not just that God is enthroned on high. It's, it's that God actually rules in the space, in the time and space of the world he created. And the seas, they represent the, the cosmic disorder in the world. That's why God is stilling them. See, the sea, it's a place of chaos. It's the place of the unseen evil. And it has this rich tradition, one that is being like brought to the fore in this passage today. And so, yes, this, this is a story about a storm, but it's also a story about so much more. And we, we begin to see this unfold even more in verse 38. So go there with me back in Mark chapter 4. We read this, but he, now that, that is Jesus, he was in the stern asleep on a cushion. And I, I like whenever I read that, I just, I think it's kind of funny. And for us, like um, land lovers, um, the stern is the back of the boat. It's kind of like the ballast of the ship. So, so there Jesus is. He's asleep on a cushion. And they awoke him. And they said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And, and maybe, maybe it's just me. But um, that, when I first came to that, uh, that little exclamation, that, that question that the disciples asked Jesus, it felt like it was a touch dramatic like I was, I was wondering to myself, is, is Mark trying to like turn up the volume here on the drama of this story? But then I remembered, this is like eyewitness testimony that Mark is recording. That's why we have little details, like there being other ships with them as they're going off into the night. So, so yes, it does feel dramatic, but that's because it is dramatic. So this question, like, do you not care that we are perishing? It's appropriate. And maybe a little context would, would help us all be on the same page here. See, back in verse 37, that word great, talking about the storm, it's this Greek word mega. And do you have any guess what the, the Greek word mega means? Yeah, yeah, it's exactly like it sounds. It's, it's huge, it's mega, it's big. And, and it's entirely, it's altogether appropriate then when this word mega is applied to the storm to think about this as a huge storm. You, you, your translation may even call it a hurricane. See, but it's not just that a hurricane, a megastorm has risen up and is now coming to bear on Jesus and his disciples. It's that it's flooding their boat. And now this boat, it's not, again, what we might think of as a boat. It's not a boat, certainly, that you want to be in a hurricane, not that anybody wants to be in the middle of a hurricane. This is a boat that's like seven and a half feet wide, maybe 30 feet long, four and a half feet high. Like, it's not a big boat. It's made for 15 people. It's got one sail there. They're like, like trying to get across this wind-tossed sea with oars and a sail. It's chaos. Absolute chaos. It's not where you want to find yourself in a hurricane and yet, where is Jesus in all this? He's asleep in the rear of the boat. So what does this say about Jesus? Like, is he, is he aloof to the storms of the world? Like, what's it say that he is sleeping in the storm? Well, sure, he, he like, could be tired. I mean, he, he did, after all, just 
preach all day under the hot Palestinian sun. So that, that could be it. But this is, a, this is a hurricane we're talking about. See, see, this is about who Jesus trusts. He trusts that God's provision, his faithfulness, is such that he will deliver him to the other side. And therefore, he can actually rest. Like, he can be at peace in any moment. And now, we'll, we'll say more on that in just a moment. But in the meantime, the disciples are freaking out. R- remember their question? Do you not care that we are perishing? And I think that this is such a poignant question for this moment. I imagine many of us are like, we've asked God of this. Do you not care that people around the world are perishing? But we're not going to chase that rabbit quite yet. Because these disciples, see, these are experienced fishermen. Remember, Jesus called them from this place to be his apprentices, to be with him, to become like him, which means that they left a life of, of like living on the sea. So they know it. They know the whole region. They, they know the nooks and the crannies. They know what a storm like this feels like. And to them, this is a place this is a storm that is going to take them down. And just look at Jesus' response in verse 39. This is stunning. And he awoke and he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace be still. And our, our translation here is a bit tame, whereas I thought that the disciples' response was a bit dramatic. The English translation here is a bit tame. We, we could actually say it as this Shut up and sit down. It's intense. And what's fascinating is that these words, the words that are on Jesus' lips right here, are the same words that were on his lips some three chapters earlier when he speaks to an unclean spirit that's manifesting himself in a man in the synagogue, and he says this very same thing. It's as if Jesus is making this moment with the storm personal. And and just as a side note here, to come back to that rabbit about crying out to God, like, do you not care? What I've noticed in this season, this season is is like this global pandemic continues to roll on and it's touching almost everyone, irrespective of race, class, and gender. And and granted, there are like disproportionate means by which the the virus is is, um, affecting communities. That's for sure. But as well-meaning as um, and sincere as people may be, I've noticed these, these statements starting to rise to the surface, specifically in, in Christian contexts and spaces ranging from social media to pulpits and uh, Christian pundits alike. And the statements go like this, God is in control, or, or he is sovereign over this. But what's meant when those things are said? Like, that's the question that comes to my mind. I have a theological response, but also there's this pastoral response that comes up in me. And it's this catch, like, really? And I understand that in anxious moments, we look to, to hold on, to kind of grasp for control or to be able to explain something, to be certain about what's going on. So we seek guarantees and we want, we want to believe that someone is in control. And certainly God is a good candidate for that, we would think. But claims like this, claims God is in control. He's sovereign over this. 
I just don't see them as faithful with the way that God displays God's self, partnering with humanity in the scriptures. Rather, what I see playing out in this is this displaced ownership, where God is then made the scapegoat of evil in the world. Do you remember Psalm 93? We just heard that song read. The whole world is established and held together by God. And he established it to be ruled with his creation, the peak and the pinnacle of creation, humanity. And then God, he, he like, he has this desire to rule with us in this. And I love how New Testament scholar Tim Gomez puts it. He says, God's rule over the world was to be manifested by humans overseeing the spread of shalom, of peace and blessing. That God charged humanity to rule over creation, subduing it, bringing about its flourishing, and enjoying its abundance. In other words, the world would see God's rule and reign through humanity as we pushed the bounds of Eden out into it. Yet humanity chose another way. We rebelled. We, we like rejected God's rule and reign in the world and exalted ourselves. And from, from that point on, when like the human fallout took place back in Genesis 3, from that point on, sin and death entered into creation. And we have seen chaos and destruction ever since. See, to us, the world looks like a place over which God is not reigning where his rule is not manifest. So we can say that God is sovereign over all things, yet his sovereign rule is not manifest completely. And so as we look at a virus taking human life, the numbers are growing. And we, and we see now that like countries are polarized, ours included, cities are polarized, families are being pushed apart, conspiracy theories like fear and anxiety are gripping our hearts. And then we begin to take these giant leaps and we start to objectify people left and right we sit in judgment over them. We cast dispersions. We begin to spew hatred at these people who bear God's image, the ones who God is intending to partner with and renew through his spirit and the power of Jesus. And when we do that, church, we look more like the world divided than the bride of Christ. So certainly a natural disaster, it can be from God's head. We see that in the Exodus account as God is, is judging the spiritual realities that humanity has partnered with rather than him. But ours, ours is a world and, and the scriptures invite us into this and I understand this is uncomfortable, but ours is a world that sits as a battleground, but not against flesh and blood. It's against rulers and authorities and, and cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is the battleground. And evil, a real evil that manifests itself in our world. Now, was an unclean spirit then behind the hurricane? If Jesus spoke to it in a personal way, and he spoke to it in the same way he spoke to an unclean spirit before. Was, was that it? Maybe. 
Some scholars say yes. I, I'm inclined to think so. Some say no. Was it truly just a storm? Like cold and warm fronts coming together in unfortunate timing on Jesus and his crew rolling across the Sea of Galilee? Maybe. Some say yes, others no. Either way, I think that we can learn something from Jesus' response here. First, Jesus rebukes the storm. And he rebukes the storm because it stands in opposition to his way and his will. It is not his will. He didn't like will the storm to then somehow quiet the storm like a um, attention-hungry narcissist or like it's just going to be some sort of good PR stunt. That's, that's not what Jesus is doing here. He rebuked the storm because second, in the face of fear, Jesus rebukes the storms when his disciples will not. That's what Jesus does. He stands where we will not and where we won't. And look what happens. Just go down there. See what happens there. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. See, if you've ever been on a large body of water or the lake or the ocean, you know that, that the wind can, can churn. It can go from one direction at the stop of a dime. But the, but the waves, see, there, was a, there was a great calm. Like glass was the water. It's Jesus displaying his power over the natural realm, over his good world. What's interesting here is, is that little line, there was a great calm, is there was a mega calm. There was a mega storm. And in Jesus's words, there comes a mega calm. And then we read this in verse 40. This is Jesus speaking. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? So let's just recap because that's a lot. Jesus has preached all day about the inbreaking power of God's kingdom, how it's unexpected. It's like a mustard seed. It, it starts small and becomes large. You don't expect it, but then all the birds of the air will come and make their nest and home in it. He teaches about this kingdom that is, is going to come at an unexpected time and with power. Then, then night comes and he asks to leave, to go over to the other side. He and his disciples then set across. A hurricane rises up on the waters. And then these able-bodied fishermen, people who are well acquainted with that context, they are scared for their lives. And then they ask Jesus, one whom they witness cast out demons and heal the sick and teach with authority. They ask him to do something that they presume he can do. And the very next thing that we read is that Jesus rebukes them, effectively calling them cowards. What is this? Why? Why does Jesus rebuke those who call on him? Does this also not make sense to you? <laughs> like, why would Jesus do this? Like, is he not the embodiment of the God who loves for his people, his children, to call upon him? This is, this is what I think is going on here. I'm not alone in this. But in the face of the storm, Jesus expects his followers to live into the fullness of kingdom power that they have and calm the sea themselves. See, after all, 
this is what humanity was conditioned, was commissioned to do. On the first pages of the scriptures, that's, that's what we read, to, that to be God's image is to bear his name. It's to actually hold his reputation before us and how we live into the world. It's to be his agents of, of sh- like bringing shalom, of subduing the chaos, of bringing peace. And so for Jesus to ask, how is it that you have no faith? is really like him asking if they were still unaware of God's power and presence available to them in Jesus, in himself. And you see, it's only after this rebuke then that a switch happens and their fear shifts. And we read this in verse 41. We read, And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So I once heard that to fear God was to love what he loves and to despise what he despises. And when I first heard that, it really resonated with me. It's like at a core level, yes, to align my life with the the affections of God, with the things that he has disdained for. Like that's that's then to be able to take on uh, the character. Like that, it just so resonated with me. But in this past season, as I've been reflecting on that, and then as it came to the fore in this moment, in this passage, I just think that is too rosy. It's too rosy of a view. You see, wherever God showed up in the scriptures, specifically in the Hebrew Bible, we, we actually see that the results were almost always the same. And I love how uh, A.W. Tozer, how he walks us through the response to God's presence. He, he says it this way. He says, It's like an overwhelming sense of terror and dismay. So is that how you feel when you, when you like go to your quiet time, to your secret place with God? It's like an overwhelming sense of terror and dismay, a wrenching sensation of sinfulness and guilt. When God spoke, Abram stretched himself upon the ground to listen. When Moses saw the Lord in the burning bush, he hid his face in fear to look upon God. Isaiah's vision of God, the one in the throne room in Isaiah 6, it wrung from him the cry, Woe is me, and the confession, I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. He goes on to say, because I am a person of unclean lips. I come from a people of unclean lips. To fear God is to be undone and safe in his presence. And it is the paradox of the power and the presence of God. And yet in the face of the storm, the disciples are simply undone. There is no peace. There's no resolve that by Jesus being with them, there is a power, a very real power that is activated by his presence in their lives. And many of us, I don't think that we would admit it, but I think that we have a small view of Jesus. We have a transactional relationship with him. Where his power is such that it actually, uh, it gets us beyond our circumstances to the heavens when all of this just goes upside down. So we say things like, well, he saved me from my sin, but I've never seen him actually stop a storm. And we say this because we have a small view of Jesus's effective will in our world. That is what Jesus wills, there's a gap in the space we inhabit. It just doesn't exist. Because when meteorological incidents occur, we turn to the weatherman 
We no longer turn to God to intervene or, or pray that God's power be moved in such a way and, and become the ones who are standing in the gap ourselves. So we need to stop allegorizing the supernatural and let the power of Jesus like actually touch down in our world. See, our, our doctrine may say that we trust in an all-powerful God, but our practice is far from it. We've taken this image of a storm and we've made it into this fable. And we then like place all of our challenging circumstances into the context of a storm. And so then we fill our minds with positive self-talk and images of a Jesus who is our crisis counselor in times of, of chaos. And so we come to him for, for personal comfort. But when, if, it's, if it's not at like this transactional level, it has no affect in our lives. And so we come to Jesus there rather than seeking the power of the living God in and with us through the Spirit. And this is, this is not meant to condemn. My hope is that the Spirit of God through the Word of God would be convicting us right now to know that Jesus is with us. You see, like the disciples, you may feel undone in this moment. And that's okay. It's okay to feel undone. Isaiah felt undone. When, and then when he stands there before God and the creature with all the wings and eyes and stuff that brings over a coal, he thinks it will consume him, but rather than consume him, it purifies him because being in the presence of God actually begins to purge away all of the stuff that does not reflect him so that we might reflect him in the world. This is what it is to draw near to God. It is not always a rosy moment. So maybe you do feel undone. Maybe you're gripped by the fear of the unknown. It's anxiety far off, it's fear close at hand, but there is one with you right now. Like in the name of Jesus, there is one with you, wherever you are at, who has a power to calm the storm. It's greater than a virus. You know, he actually spoke peace to the waves and they stopped. He told the wind to be still and it stopped. And this one, this Jesus, he's not content for our world to be the way that it is. And we see that because he wasn't content with the condition of his sin-sick world, so he entered into it. And he took all of that into himself and he broke the enslaving grip of sin and death. And now God, he has promised that he is bringing about a future new creation that will be completely free of devastation and chaos caused by sin and death. And more, that any and all who call upon the name of Jesus, that they will inhabit this future world and they will enjoy it. They will be fully saturated by shalom. They will be in, like just enraptured by peace. It'll be the wonder of flourishing. And yet right now, we have no guarantees that in this world, everything will work out. Especially work out as we want it to. So you might say, okay, okay, Kyle, like, okay, Pastor, what, like, what do we do then? How do I begin to like, actually trust this? Just start small. Like, actually begin to pray. Pray that God, through his power, would begin to 
push back against these realities. And we don't know. We don't know what how or why or what the circumstances are behind the veil of our world. Like we don't know why this virus is doing what it's doing, why there's division in our country the way that it is. But if we truly are to be a contrast community, a community that stands as a light in the darkness, then let us actually shine. Let us like present our good deeds with humility before man so they might see the goodness of God on display. And here's what I can promise for each and every one of us. We will suffer. We will experience pain and loss, virus or no virus. But the power that raised Jesus, the power that calmed the storm, that power isn't alive. It is alive in those of us who trust in Jesus, who've given our allegiance to him. So we can be crippled by fear. We can be undone. Or we can walk in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And as we pray, we can wait upon those prayers. We can wait for them to go to God and then to come back to us. We can pray that God's will be done here, wherever you are, as it is in heaven. So if you feel powerless, you're not. Because Jesus is with you. You are not powerless. You actually have a choice in all of this. You can call upon the name of the Lord. No one's forcing you to do anything. And you know what's beautiful about following Jesus? Is we actually get to give away our preferences for the good of the other. We, we serve a Lord that gave away his life for our good. And so you know what we can do? We can wear a mask. You know what we can do? We can love one another by staying away. We can love one another by drawing near in a way that honors another person. We can do all these things and not be forced, but actually choose to love one another. Not make it political, but make it simply about honoring one another as Jesus does by laying aside our preferences for one another's good. And I hope it's uncomfortable. I hope that it is so that we actually know so that we actually can remember it in our bodies, that our life is being poured out for the good of one another and for the glory of God. Let us be a people that Jesus never questions our faith. Let us be those who are with him, who ask for the spirit to come and work through us. Let us be his church in this moment. Grace and peace to you.